Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. No one ever forced anyone to chart their cycles. Like no one's standing around with a gun in anyone's head, like you need to use fertility awareness. And so the women who choose to chart their cycles are highly motivated to do so. They're doing it because they want to. Some of them are doing it because they've had a negative effect from the hormones. Stress is the inflammation that robs us of life, energy, and happiness. Our typical solutions for gut health and hormone balance have let a lot of us down. We're over-medicated and underserved. At The Less Stressed Life, we're a community of health-savvy women exploring solutions outside of our traditional Western medicine toolbox and training to raise the bar and change our stories. Each week, our hope is that you leave our sessions inspired to learn, grow, and share these stories to raise the bar in your life and home. This episode is sponsored by Full Well Prenatal Multivitamin, formerly known as Full Circle Prenatal. Full Well Prenatal is the only prenatal multivitamin on the market with optimum nutrients for before, during, and after pregnancy. Use the code less stressed to get a discount at fullwellfertility.com. All right, today on The Less Stressed Life, we have Lisa Hendrickson Jack, who is a certified fertility awareness educator and holistic reproductive health practitioner who teaches women how to chart their menstrual cycle for natural birth control, conception, and monitoring overall health. In her new book, The Fifth Vital Sign, Lisa debunks the myth that regular ovulation is the only important thing when you want children by recognizing the menstrual cycle as a vital sign. Drawing heavily from the current scientific literature, Lisa presents an evidence based approach to fertility awareness and menstrual cycle optimization. She hosts the Fertility Friday podcast a weekly radio show devoted to helping women connect to their fifth vital sign by uncovering the connection between menstrual cycle, health, fertility, and overall health. I mean, if you don't know, she, it's a big deal. Like her podcast is fantastic. So if you're into trying to understand your cycle or you're struggling a bit with fertility, which a great place to start is looking at your cycle, Fertility Friday be a great resource. Welcome, Lisa. Thanks so much. Yeah. So I was fortunate to have Lisa's book in front of me and be able, and it's so great. And I have a book I love to recommend to most women and it is by Laura Bryden. And so I kind of have a fan. I fangirl a little bit for Laura Bryden because I think her period repair manual, barring like, don't judge if you feel like your period isn't broken, don't judge it's by its cover because it's a great manual for women's health. And I always say like, have the text resource because it's so easy to look through and kind of say, like, I have this problem. I want to skip around to here. 
Lisa's book is very similar. It's going to go on my list of like top recommended women's health books because in a very similar way, it's categorized in those same ways. Like you got a problem with this? Check me out here. I mean, certainly read through the thing, but also the nice thing is there's like bullet points at the end. So anyway, thanks because... It's writing a book is not for the faint of heart, especially writing a good book. <laughs> so, and how many years did you spend compiling and writing it? Two. Two. Yeah. yeah. And I would say, yeah, because I mean, at the end of the book, the 40 pages of like references, mm. that's what it is. Because as you can appreciate, well, the way that I kind of role is especially mm-hmm. because I'm not a medical doctor. And of course, if you want to write a book like this, people are going to say like, who is she to write this book? So mm-hmm. I really take the approach of don't take my word for it. I'm citing everything I'm saying. So if there's something that I'm saying in the book that you're not really sure about, or you've never really heard before, or you want to bring up with your doctor, you know, and if you happen to be a research super nerd or something like that, you can actually go and find the full text, the data for yourself. And I think that's really important for women's health. Because so many women struggle, as you know, to get adequate care. And if they do approach health from a natural perspective, or they are looking into something like the fertility awareness method, and their doctor isn't familiar with it, they can get really discouraged, you know, so, Mm -hmm. yeah. I actually wanted to give you credit for how many citations there were. However, you did this humble thing where you just kind of put them, you didn't have a total number. Every chapter has, you know, between 10 to a lot. So I didn't know how many was actually, I mean, it's page, like you said, it's 40 pages of references in tiny, tiny hit print. How many is it? It's like over a thousand. I don't have a specific number. And like, you quit counting. (laughs) Oh yeah. And my editor, because initially I had them in like one by one. And like, so there's some citations where one number lists like eight things. Mm Mm-hmm. We could talk. We could go off on that topic for a while. I did this cookbook and I wanted to, you know, you sort of want to solve everyone's problems in a book, which I think you're doing a good job with, by the way, in your text. They told me, the publisher was like, this is a cookbook, not a science book. You need to cut a bunch of words. And I took some of them out of the, anyway, I do have actually a true empathy for this at not the same level, right? Like yours is uh, many steps above that, but I have a slight appreciation. I hope this is useful for someone listening. When I learned about the citation manager Zotero, I was like, where was this a year ago when I really could have used it? You know, one of those, I'm sure you used a citation manager, but it's like life-changing. Oh, I have a folder. folder. And in that folder, (laughs) I'm crying inside for you. I know. I'm literally crying. Yeah. Yeah. But it works, right? It works. It works until you learn how much easier a citation manager is. And you're like, oh, that was days of my life, maybe weeks. Anyway, doesn't matter. It's fantastic. Let's talk about fertility and whatnot. And I always love to start a little bit with your story. And because I have perused, not read every word of the book, but perused heavily your book, I know that you say something about yourself that I feel like many people, when I'm talking to them as potential clients say, like, I'm hearing this similar thing. I don't really want to be on medications. So I want to get back to the point of that in a moment, but your story was, this isn't the beginning of it, but after you started tracking your cycle, you noted that it was a little bit longer and your coach or a mentor, I don't know what she was, mentioned that you might have, in, in the answer you got from your doctor, you can share what that was, was like not super helpful, but your mentor that was, you know, perusing your menstrual cycle tracking suggested you might have um, thyroid issues. Will you tell us about that? Yeah. So I started tracking my cycle and I had read Taking Charge of Your Fertility. And I mean, give me 
a little grace. I was like 18. Mm-hmm. But when I remember reading it, and so she had these images of like short cycle, a long cycle, and a regular cycle. And I was going through this post high school kind of feminist phase. And so when I discovered that every cycle didn't have to be 28 days, I kind of took that on as an identity. I was like, I'm Lisa, and I have long cycles, and that's okay. So my cycles were averaging about 38 days. And I remember that because I was charting on paper and like I would literally calculate the averages at the end of the year. So that meant my cycles regularly were over 40 days and it was just like a thing. So my uh, charting instructor, she looked at my charts and she noted that my temperatures were really low and that my cycles were really long. And she was like, I think you should get your thyroid checked. And that was a serious moment for me because up until that point, I didn't really understand the charting as a vital sign aspect. I just thought it was this really cool thing. I was using it for birth control. It was working. And so, and that's what I wanted it for. (laughs) Like I didn't actually jump on the charting train for health reasons. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was looking for birth control. So then I did go to the doctor and I did have... Have my thyroid check and I did have like a subclinical thyroid issue. Now, looking back, I think because I do think I'm predisposed to like in my family to metabolic issues. So I do think also that like if I wanted to have PCOS, I know exactly what to eat. I could make it happen. So I think that there was kind of both of those things going on, but certainly I don't remember if I talked about this in the book, but at some point on this journey, I went to the doctor specifically because my cycles were really long. And then after I had learned about the vital sign aspect, I wanted to see if they had anything for me. So I booked this appointment. The doctor basically said, there's nothing you can do. Your cycles are just long. Mm -hmm. And he told me, but like, he was like, you can go back on the pill. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then I also made them check me for fibroids, which I had. And then he was like, so go on the pill, you'll have shorter cycles. And then, the, you know, it'll control the fibroids, he said. So I obviously didn't. And eventually I did figure out what was actually wrong with me. And my cycles are now averaging like 29, 30 days. So moral of the story is like, it it is possible to actually get your cycles in line if you figure out what's going on. So you mentioned going to the doctor. I don't remember you mentioning having low temp, which makes sense because if we think about thyroid, it's like master regulator. So it's going to like tamp things down. I think if I'm thinking about it properly, I think like low low temp would make sense. Right. So just like lower caloric use, right? Because like, it's just tamping, it's just down regulating overall metabolism. Did you looking back have any classical thyroid type symptoms? Well, on the one hand, I would say not really, but it was hard to tell. I was a university student. Mm-hmm. So you were tired. An adult living, like going to bed early and like eating really well all the time. So, I mean, I think that looking back, it would have been easy to miss because I mean, as a college student, I was a typical college student. Right. I stayed up late. I drank coffee. I did the whole thing. So if anything, any symptoms I had would have been masked. And it was at a low level, like it was caught at a subclinical level. So I think that that's a really important point as well in general about charting. And also kind of to make this point that so there were these subtle signs on my chart that led me to that diagnosis. Had that not happened, I would have never had that diagnosed. And so the kind of question mark in the sky forever is kind of like what would have happened if I wasn't charting and I hadn't caught that? Totally. You know, would I have ended up, would it have exacerbated and, you know, would I have ended up gaining weight and having some more serious problems down the road? Would it have caused me significant problems in pregnancy or, you know, and we'll never know. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the benefits about charting in this kind of specific way, because it's on the chart, you can often detect things before they turn into this giant, Mm. ugly problem. Yes. Thank you for bringing it back to the cycle being the vital sign. I'm kind of harping on this a little bit because 
I have been learning from my clients' experiences that thyroid is so much more gray than I maybe once gave it credit for. And so when you say when you have subclinical hypothyroid, sometimes that might be borderline. It's going to depend on, well, the reference ranges are pretty consistent-ish, but it's going to depend on how that particular, I think, provider would read it. So I'm curious about your provider and how they read it. If it was like, oh, you're just kind of border and what they did to support it. Because what I'm also, what I've learned over the last probably year and a half with clients is that when we support the nutrients that help the thyroid work optimally, we're seeing different outcomes than just going on a thyroid medication. Even though if you have hypothyroid, it's important. We consider it pretty darn important to be on medication, but I'm just learning that it's more of a gray area. So I'm actually wondering one, how your provider interpreted it, because I think that might be relevant rather than escalating by and saying, oh, I had subclinical hypothyroid. I think people have their thyroid tested all the time. We miss a lot of subclinical hypothyroid. So I'd love to hear at that age and time, and I know it was a long time ago at the very beginning of your journey, how it was kind of looked at, diagnosed, who interpreted that if they interpret it, you know, borderline, you know, outside of or it was still within range, but you know, on the lines and then what you did to support it, if it was mostly lifestyle or if you did anything else. Well, so my charting instructor, who is the founder of Justice Healthworks, <laughs> she was my charting instructor. Lucky, good luck there to have that as my experience. So given that she is trained in that kind of holistic approach, so that's part of the reason it was detected in the first place, even on my chart. And so she referred me to a naturopathic doctor. So she had a combined practice at the time with her husband, I think then husband, and he was a naturopathic doctor. And so he was the one that ordered the test for me. So in this particular occasion, I actually didn't go to my regular doctor. I went to a naturopathic doctor. So Mm -hmm. at that time, I was I don't know how old I was exactly, but you know, in my early 20s, like somewhere between like 19 and 22 or something like Mm -hmm. that. And so I didn't know what I know now about the thyroid. And I don't really know that my thyroid was really properly managed to the full extent. So in my experience, isn't (laughs) the template for anyone else. I just want to put that out there Mm -hmm. because I've certainly learned a lot since then. So, I mean, basically what happened in my case was, and I don't remember what the numbers were, the test, like that kind of stuff, Mm -hmm. because that was not something my 20-year-old self had any knowledge about, to be honest, Mm -hmm. to even be asking for the labs and all of that. Like that wasn't where I was at in life. (laughs) So ultimately, what I can look back and kind of deduce from that, first of all, no one was checking my thyroid. (laughs) That wouldn't have happened. And if they had, I probably would have been under the standard range. So nothing would have really happened. And what happened in my case is I went on a lower dose of desiccated thyroid Mm -hmm. medication. I also took iodine to supplement that. Mm -hmm. And that was basically it in terms of how it was managed. So obviously, there's a lot more that I know now. And even in chapters, you know, six and 16, where I talk about a little bit about thyroid disorders and different things and, you know, the research, there's a lot, obviously, more that could have been done. So I don't have an answer like, if I had addressed those things and addressed those nutrient deficiencies, would I have been able to avoid medication? You know, it's possible. Mm -hmm. I'll never know. At this stage where I am now, I still take medication for thyroid and I can't not take medication. So certainly like in retrospect, we could have a conversation about that. And I think for a lot of women who are at that kind of level, like you said, like that line, it's an important thing to kind of note. The challenge, as you know, is that 
a lot of women are diagnosed around the time that they get pregnant. <laughs> we could talk about why that is because, you know, you have to produce thyroid hormone. And if you're already struggling a little bit, if you do have any nutrient deficiencies that are not being addressed, then the moment you get pregnant, essentially you have to make thyroid hormone for yourself and the baby. And so your thyroid hormone production has to go up about 50% right off the bat. And so if you're already struggling, then it's not going to work. And certainly having an uncontrolled thyroid issue makes you at a higher risk for miscarriage. So a lot of women at that, like it's it's just a lot, like you're pregnant, all of a sudden the doctor's in your face telling you you have to go on thyroid medication. You're like, I don't want to take medication. But you don't realize that like you might need to take medication in order for this pregnancy mm-hmm. to continue and things like that. So it is a complicated discussion because generally speaking, yeah, like I try to avoid medication, but with thyroid issues, it has been my experience and the experience of many clients that some women can manage it depending on if it's at the early stages and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And other women need to be on thyroid medication for a long time. And I'm sure we could talk about or forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm sure we could talk about why that is. And I'm sure that there's a lot of environmental factors and all the things, all the totally. reasons why, right? But at the same it's a whole time, not, it's a whole conversation. Yeah. But it's a, it's a hard reality. It's like, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. It was for me. I was right. not impressed that I was put on this medication and I needed to be on it forever. I remember I was kind of freaking out about it. My cousin was like, well, it's a big deal. Well, it's a perfect segue. And I'm glad we brought it up because we're acknowledging this is very important medication to be on. You, I thank you for bringing up pregnancy because your needs really rise. And so you just cannot keep up with things. And so it's all happening at once and it feels like alarming. But as I started with, and I'm going to come back to it, a lot of common thing people say is I don't want to be on medications. So I'm going to segue away from thyroid now for a moment because we could talk about it forever and I forgot I had a thousand questions for you. So not everyone considers hormonal contraceptives as medication because so common, we think about it as normal, even though it's something additional we're using. Do you feel like you see, and maybe, you know, we all have our rose-colored glasses of of the corner of the world that we are in, right? Or the internet of that we're in. So do you feel like you're seeing an increase in people wanting to be off of hormonal contraceptives now versus when you started working in this area? That's a really good question. See, when I started working in this area, <laughs> I was really young and it was like almost 20 years ago. Like when I started being in this field and talking about fertility awareness and teaching women to chart their cycles and all those kinds of things. And so I feel like 20 years ago was actually a different time. It was, it was a time generation. When, gen- yeah. And, and so the example I give of that is before I had discovered fertility awareness, I decided when I needed birth control and I was becoming sexually active, I decided that I was going to come off of the pill because I had been on the pill for other issues for period mm-hmm. pain and use condoms. Because when I went to school, it was all about HIV. So they went on about condoms at length. And at that time, they taught us that condoms were effective in preventing pregnancy. So I actually had just as much confidence in condoms as I did in the pill. So I just want to say that. So I actually went off the pill and I was just going to use condoms and that's when I discovered fertility awareness. So the reason I bring that up is because in this age, it's a lot different. So both things seem to be happening at once. On the one hand, there's a lot of women who are now discovering their cycles and the whole fifth vital sign concept. A lot, 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 lot more women are discovering fertility awareness because this conversation is a lot more open and fertility awareness methods and non-hormonal methods are a lot more widely known about now. 
Mm-hmm. On the flip side, women are a lot more terrified that they're going to get pregnant because there's been a lot heavier indoctrination to believe that now. So when I was growing up, it was like I could use condoms. And if I wasn't on birth control, there were other ways to manage it. And that was okay. But now it's like, if you're not on hormonal birth control, it's just a matter of time until you get pregnant. The clock is just ticking. So now I feel like women are like way more scared of Mm. choosing to be off contraceptives than I was or the women of my day, if you will, were. I feel like maybe this is a good place to insert, if you know, the efficacy rate of condoms versus hormonal birth control versus the fertility awareness method. I'm sure that's kind of tucked in your brain. The Well, and then rates. there's the like the typical use versus the perfect use. So perfect use condoms, 98%. Perfect use fertility awareness-based method. So it's important to know that there's different methods. There's mucus-only methods. There's temperature-only methods. There are symptothermal, which I think is the most popular, especially among just the general woman who's using fertility awareness. And so perfect use with symptothermal methods with the rules, like when you understand the rules and everything is up to 99.4%. And hormonal contraceptives obviously vary from 99% effective. And it it depends on the type that you're using. There's a lot of different types. The least effective percentage wise would probably be the progesterone only pill. But yeah, they're all pretty much up there. So typical use is obviously different. Even with birth control pills, a lot of women don't know if you take antibiotics or et cetera, et cetera, it can kind of have an unexpected baby. But with hormonal options, you have methods. The most effective hormonal method is the implant and the IUD, you know, followed by those because there's nothing you can do to screw it up. And obviously the efficacy then is different when Mm. you have to take something. And the interesting thing with fertility awareness-based methods is that they are entirely user-dependent. So that means that the typical use can vary widely. And some of the studies will include someone who uses an app and says that like they don't actually practice a specific method. So realistically, if a woman is actually, you know, following it and it depends on the method, it depends on all of these factors, typical use can certainly vary closer to like, you know, somewhere between 80 to 98%. And then condoms, again, if you look on Planned Parenthood, they'll tell you typical use is like 75%. But I guess my point is that women can use condoms, women can use fertility awareness, And they can achieve the high efficacy as long as they choose a method, learn it, follow the rules, and are motivated to do so. What I always say is that no one ever forced anyone to chart their cycles. Like, no one's standing around with a gun in anyone's head, like, you need to use fertility awareness. And so the women who choose to chart their cycles are highly motivated to do so. They're doing it because they want to. Some of them are doing it because they've had a negative effect from the hormones. And so a lot of women are highly, highly motivated to do it. And so it is possible to learn to use these methods correctly and really get the high, you know, that 99% efficacy range, as long as you know what you're doing and take enough time to learn it. I forgot about antibiotics reducing efficacy of hormonal contraceptives. And so I just want to think about that out loud. I like gut health is my preferred topic of interest. And so I just want to think about what the mechanism of action is there. Do we know the mechanism of action of why antibiotics reduce the efficacy of hormonal birth control? Or is it just that we're affecting gut microbiota, which affects, it is like kind of a, it's a shift in what would be happening hormonally. So we can't consistently say like hormonal birth control is helping. Did that make any sense? (laughs) It does. I actually don't know the specific mode of action. I mean, I've looked at the extent to which I've done the research on it is that it affects it. Mm -hmm. Now you have me curious. Um, Right. I hadn't thought about it either, really. But I'm like, hey, gut health affects hormones. 
It's interesting because hormonal contraceptives affect gut health negatively and women who have a predisposition to Crohn's disease or IBS, certainly there's a lot of studies that show that the pill makes it worse. Mm -hmm. And and fungal overgrowth. Right. Yep. And there's a lot of women who go on the pill. And it's interesting because I just posted this thing on Instagram this morning. And I just posted like a question and I had like hundreds of answers, like they're the most common side effects. So a lot of women experience yeast, obviously. And mm-hmm. I'm talking to so many women who they go on the pill, they get the yeast infection. And then the doctor, of course, doesn't say it could be pills. So they end up with an antifungal and then they get BV, bacterial vaginosis, and then they just swing back and forth in this lovely hot mess until like they get off the ride and stop taking the birth control. Perfect. This was one of my tangents I wanted to go off on, which was continuous yeast infections or hidden yeast infections. I think there's a couple questions wrapped into this. One is, we don't talk about microbiota of the partner super commonly. So let's think about that if we want to add anything around microbiome of partner, because we know we share microbiota with our families. And I just think like, okay, we're swapping fluids here. Pretty sure you're going to have some stuff going on. So microbiota, a partner, anything around that. But let's talk about what do we want to tell women where we're having hard to correct yeast issues, or maybe some of the things to think about if you've got hidden yeast issues or hidden bacterial recurrent things. And the other thing to say here also is that there's certain symptoms related to each of these. However, you don't always have the symptoms. So some people will have, I have a lady who says, well, every time I get my annual exam, I have elevated bacteria. So they always treat me for BV. Like, I feel like I never had symptoms. I'm like, oh, that's odd, interesting, whatever. Okay. So let's talk about issues with recurrent yeast and bacteria down there. It's it's kind of broad. I think Mm -hmm. it is helpful to know that connection if you are on hormonal birth control or if you recently went on, because that is something that, yeah, you wouldn't think that the pill would make a difference. And if you happen to be on the pill and you get a yeast infection or something, you wouldn't think it's connected. So I think that's helpful just to kind of know that because I have spoken to women who had that weird kind of like on off thing and then they went off the pill and it kind of resumed. So it is helpful to know that the pill does have an effect on microbiota that is not positive. Mm-hmm. With charting, to your point and your example of the woman who didn't really have symptoms. So through charting, I teach a detailed mucus charting method. It's symptothermal that I teach, but it's the mucus part is really detailed and it goes along with the temperature and everything. And so when you're charting the mucus in a detailed way, so for example, my clients are are not like writing down like sticky, creamy and egg white. <laughs> There's notations that allow us to identify that, you know, it's a basic stuff, but it's like, you know, what color is it? How much does it stretch? What are you seeing? If you have a dry day, like what are you seeing on those days, et cetera, et cetera. And so some women will know, like, for example, if their mucus is yellow and just even if it's like kind of a subtle thing, but the mucus is supposed to be like white. So like creamy white hand lotion as you, just in case someone doesn't know, talking about cervical fluid in the fertile window. So in, in your menstrual cycle, before you ovulate, you produce estrogen and that triggers the production of cervical fluid in your cervix, which is the base of the uterus. And it can look like creamy white hand lotion, or it can look like clear, raw, stretchy egg whites. And so in a normal healthy cycle, you would expect sometimes to see the white like lotion or the clear or a slippery sensation. If you see yellow, for example, I've had clients who literally that's, they don't, they're not itchy. They don't have any irritation, but they're just seeing a a yellow tinge. And it's not just one. It's like they're seeing it, you know, most cycles, at least a couple of times, or the mucus itself is like gummy. Like, so mucus is supposed to be like a raw egg white is a really good example. Like it's stretchy, it's water, like it's hydrated, but it shouldn't be like hard to pull. Like it's not hydrated. And so sometimes women can have underlying infections. 
and they don't really have symptoms. Like they're not itchy. They're not irritated. They're not noticing like overly excessive, quote, discharge. So that's an important thing because it is possible then that your client could actually have BV bacterial vaginosis, even if she doesn't necessarily have symptoms. So I think that's interesting. And then just as a, a side note as well, like if you are charting your mucus and you have like some level of lotiony stuff every single day, because there's levels, it's not like everyone just wakes up with like completely at the end of the spectrum, you're super itchy and irritated and whatever. Mm. You can have an overgrowth and not necessarily be overly irritated. Something I think is really important to mention is that over the years, I've worked with a number of clients who have regular irritation and itchiness in their vulva region. Mm-hmm. And nine times out of 10, literally, I'll ask them how they clean themselves. And yeah, it's a little strange having like talking to grown women about how they wash their vulvas. But you know what, someone has to do it. And nine out of 10 times they wash their vulvas with soap. Mm. And so first and foremost, it's like public service announcement. <laughs> yeah. And feel free to disagree with me or to challenge me on this, but there is a right way to wash the vulva. The actual vulva does not require soap. So, and this is an interesting discussion because there's two camps. There's definitely two camps on this. Like some women wash their vulvas with soap and some women do not. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say the correct way to manage the cleanliness of your vulva. And I'm intentionally using the word vulva to indicate the lips, the outer and inner lips, not the actual vagina itself on the inside, but the correct way to clean is water. And so I often have this conversation with clients and I'll say, yeah, you can use soap on the pubic bone. You can use soap like on the, you know, the the seam between your leg and the outer labia. Like obviously if you're sweating and stuff like that, but Mm -hmm. no soap in the lips. And that's because soap will actually wash away some of our good vaginal flora. We could have a whole conversation about the vagina itself. So the, you know, the inside, the vagina, because I remember I was when I was writing a part of the book and it was about the pH of the vagina. So the pH of an adult woman's vagina outside of the fertile window is actually acidic. And that is a natural protective mechanism against yeast and against viruses and all of those types of things. And it's only during the fertile window when we're making that cervical fluid that the pH of the vagina actually becomes more alkaline. And that's temporary to allow the sperm to survive, et cetera. But why is it acidic? It's acidic because we have this microflora in there. So there's a community of bacteria and some yeast and all of these wonderful guys that are actually, you know, producing lactic acid, this whole thing. And so there's a whole community. Like, I don't know if you know this, but there's an entire community inside your vagina and they're maintaining the proper pH of your vagina for you to prevent you from getting overgrown. So yeah, if you're washing your vagina with soap on a regular basis, you're actually disrupting that natural situation and making yourself much more likely to be, you know, open to infections. And so I've had a number of clients who we have this conversation because they have this irritation on a regular basis. Like they're always irritated down there. They're always in between these infections or whatever. And then we get the like washing with soap to stop. And it's hard for (laughs) women who wash with soap because they're so convinced. They're like, it smells, you know, I have to use soap. And I'm like, no, it's supposed to smell like a vulva. It's not a cherry cheesecake. (laughs) I have had a lot of smiles because I've got a lot of thoughts going through my head. One, I got to finally hear the Toronto accent come out with the against. Two, I was thinking a long time ago in the conversation, I was like, I wish Lisa would come out with an app 
for tracking, side note, come back to that later, maybe soaping the vagina, you know, we give the same recommendations around skin stuff. We're having an epidemic of hand eczema right now because of like overuse of alcohol and it's disrupting the lipid barrier that would protect us from bacteria. Our body is like so smart all the time, right? So it's like got this protective barrier to prevent the yeast and fungal overgrowth that we just strip away. And so now stuff can grow. And in the same way, I had a light bulb moment. I just want you to know. I thought while you were talking about the pH of the vagina, I was like, the vagina is the stomach of the vaginal microbiome. You know, like the vagina and the stomach are connected in the sense that if the gut health is off, the the vaginal microbiome will be off as well. And so to improve your vaginal microbiome, like A, stop the bloody soap, (laughs) B, and I say this with love, I do. It's just that I've seen it so many times. I've had a, and I've, you can tell I've had those conversations with Mm -hmm. clients and I do appreciate the, the nervousness, you know, like what if I stink? What if I smell? So I can understand that, that nervousness, but I'm a very high human being and there's no soap in the vulva ever and mm-hmm. it's fine it's okay fix the gut health and if you fix the gut health that can spill over as well so you know to your initial question because i definitely went on the soap tangent because i think it's really important because i find that like i said nine out of ten times if i'm working with a woman who has a kind of significant recurrent consistent issue like it's just an ongoing thing it's very, very often related to the soap thing. And another just random thing, like the actual vagina inside does not ever need to be washed. So that's something that should be said. Yes. And it's only the outside that I'm referring to. But yeah, so one of the big things too is sugar consumption, definitely, or even just an imbalance of macros. You know, a lot of us have oatmeal for breakfast and then like toast at lunch and just like pasta with no meat. And so it's just all like, I'm not anti-carb, but mm-hmm. you got, we got to balance those macros, right? So yeah. if you have an issue with yeast, then you may want to consider looking at those macros and making, and when I say macros, you know what I mean? Like the protein, mm-hmm. the fat and the carbohydrates. And if you have a significant issue, like you're concerned about yeast, sugar feeds yeast. So you might want to actually look at increasing the protein, increasing the healthy fats, and looking at some of the lower glycemic carbohydrates, even for a period of time to allow your body to stabilize. And of course, depending on the level of your gut health, because it's easy to say, oh, go take probiotics, eat, you know, probiotic foods. But some women, their gut is in such a state that if they go and do that, it's just going to cause them a lot of distress. So you kind of have to go easy on that and see where you are with everything. This is good. So we're talking about foundational things to correct gut microbiome to improve vaginal microbiome. And I think in general, we share microbiota or a family. So maybe there's something with that. But long story short, when we fix gut health, I think we have less issues with bacterial and fungal overgrowth there. I mean, I think we could talk about that for a lot longer, right? Like we could have a whole conversation about lube and all the things that might disrupt vaginal microflora. But let's talk about a fun topic called fertility and the moon. Oh, and also, if you'd like to know about vaginal steaming, please refer to Lisa's book. Just kidding. I'm not kidding. I'm actually serious, but I was smiling about that earlier when you're talking about washing. We're not going to get into it. Speaking of, so I'm not a vaginal steam like therapist or like the peri steam hydrotherapist, I believe. Excuse me. Um, But I've done a few interviews. And so I certainly have heard kind of on the grapevine that sometimes, you know, women with struggle with BV actually experience some degree of relief with steaming, you know, Mm -hmm. so I'll just leave that right there. 
Right. We could surmise about that too. All right. So fertility in the moon. I was, I thought it was cool that you touched on this in the book briefly. Do you want to just school us for a little bit on that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a lot of us generally, of course, are fascinated by this potential connection between our cycles and the moon. And one of the things that can happen when you start to chart your cycles, I know what happened for me. It wasn't always extremely consistent, but when I started paying attention, I would often either ovulate or menstruate with the moon, like with the full moon. And so I decided to kind of look into some research and see if there was anything to that. And it's interesting because the research wasn't conclusive. You don't always ovulate or menstruate with the moon, but there was a pretty significant correlation. So it was kind of like more often than chance, women were ovulating or menstruating with the full moon or the new moon. So I think that's really interesting. A lot of women get really into it. And I did a couple of interviews around there's a method related to the moon and how it can affect your cycle. And what's interesting, so I guess the example that was given in the research is if your cycles are really long, then one of the things that they propose to help regulate the cycle is by using light to try to train your cycle kind of to mimic what the moon would kind of do. Because the moon, obviously, when the moon is full, the sky is more full of light. And so to break it down then, I believe the suggestion was, you know, sleep in total darkness, the majority of your cycle. And then around days, I'll probably get it wrong. It's been a minute since I looked at that section. But around days, I would, there's like three days, like days 15, 16, and 17, you like sleep with the light on or something like that. And there's actually some research to show that doing that has shortened the menstrual cycle. If I can find the page of, is is really interesting. I mean, it wouldn't be my first port of call for <laughs> for a woman. It is really free, though. Cycles. It is free. What is the first port of call for the majority? Because like, I think there's some foundational things that help all of us have healthier cycles. So certainly, I do recommend for most of my clients to do their best to make their rooms dark, like pitch black. So, you know, if you have a lot of light filtering in from the street to actually put something over the window so that you're getting darkness when you sleep. And there is evidence to show that when you have light seeping in through the windows and all those kinds of things, I mean, if you think about what's supposed to happen, it's supposed to be sunny in the daytime and it's supposed to be dark at night. So when you wake up in the morning and the sun shines through and you can feel like, oh, who opened the window? You're actually feeling the melatonin go away that was making you tired and you're feeling the cortisol show up. And so that is, I always call cortisol nature's coffee. So when you're sleeping, it's supposed to be dark because if you actually expose yourself to light all night, it prevents the full elevation of your melatonin levels. So there is something to this. And then I suppose the question would be, you know, if you want to give it a try to actually give yourself three days of light around when ovulation is supposed to be to see if that would help regulate your cycle. So certainly, like I said, it wouldn't be my first port of call, but I think that it's really interesting that there is research on that. I might have it. That's what I was looking at. So I don't know if this is the right one, but I do want to do a little quote because I think it's really good. But this one's from Epidemiology and it's called Rotating Shift Work and Menstrual Cycle Characteristics. And this is the quote. Sleep disruptions and nighttime light exposure are associated with an increased risk of menstrual cycle irregularities, pain with menstruation, early miscarriage, preterm birth, low birth weight, and infertility. I feel like that's kind of a big deal, guys, for sleep disruptions and nighttime light exposure. So the study that I just noted, published in Epidemiology, which is the one you're quoting, 
may have been the one after that, found out that nighttime shift work significantly increased endometriosis risk. I feel like this is a big deal. So what I'm going to back up, if I think about the mechanism of how this works, and you feel free to interrupt me at any time if you want, but if I think about the mechanism of how this works, excess estrogen type symptoms are my jam because I'm like, oh, gut health is a big thing here, right? There's a lot of things here, but like gut health is a big thing, but stress is a big thing. And so I would like to ask you, I want to just talk about endo a little bit. And I want to talk about stress because very much so stress during the month will affect that month's flow or cycle symptoms or whatnot. It's very interesting. We probably couldn't put our finger on this, but I sometimes wonder to myself when I've even had this happen to my own self, I'm like, oh, this month was stressful. I'm not surprised that my period came with slightly more of an announcement than none, right? So I wonder how much time of stress you almost need to have to affect your cycle that month. Because I always think usually things that affect your cycle, I always feel like they are slightly delayed, right? Like you only get this cycle. The cycle is one time per month, right? So it's not like it's, you have a week to make changes. But if you have any comments about stress affecting cycle that month, or even maybe just a story around it, that's cool too. But I definitely see that happen. And it seems like it happens pretty dang quick. It's like, it takes a lot of time for the positive things to take effect. But when you add a bunch of pile of stress, it seems like you might see a difference really quickly from that. And there's like a roadblock that can happen with stress with clearing estrogen as maybe one mechanism. But anyway, you go ahead and riff on that and your thoughts around that. Yeah. So this is something that I see all the time. And what I always say about charting is that for a lot of women, charting is the first opportunity for them to see the tangible, very specific way that stress will affect the cycle. And I think that stress is a really good example of the fifth vital sign in action, meaning your menstrual cycle is a vital sign and it does change in real time. And you made an interesting comment because you said with stress, it seems to affect it right away, but positive things often take time. So I'll share a couple of examples with you as I talk about this, because I would say yes and no to that. Mm -hmm. What I found is that if there's a cycle issue, if we figure out why that issue is happening, I believe in the 80-20 rule as, as it applies to the cycle, there's usually a big rock. There's usually a big factor that's causing most of the problem. And so if you hit that big rock, like if you hit that nail on the head, then you'll often see a giant shift in like a cycle or two to the positive. Right. And then the 20% is kind of the other contributing factors. And those you know, we can kind of mix and figure out those things and to get the full effect. So in terms of stress, one of the things I like to differentiate between chronic stress and acute stress, because acute stress is that thing that happens at that time. And so if you are in the pre-ovulatory phase, so you've had your period, but you haven't yet ovulated, if you experience a stressful event and you know, stressful events, we think of them as emotional events. You know, my boss did this thing, I had this deadline, etc. We tend to think of them as negative, but it can be positive. Like you could be getting married and that can mm-hmm. be stressful, but like it's not bad, but it's still stressful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's all those kinds of things. And so in those types of situations, one of the most common effects is a delayed ovulation. So if you're charting your cycle, you might notice that you're approaching ovulation because you see cervical fluid. And then you might even think you ovulated. I, I see it all the time where women expect to ovulate around day 14, surprise, surprise, and they see their mucus and then it goes away. And so they're like, oh, I ovulated because after you ovulate, the mucus usually dries up, but then the mucus comes back and then they kind of deny it like, oh, I know, I can't, I, I never ovulate this late, but you can. And mm-hmm. so uh, certainly that's one of the ways that it can affect it. And 
that in of itself, like a lengthening of the preovulatory phase means that you're exposed to estrogen for more days of the cycle, which can then, you know, have some degree of an effect depending on how long that lasts on the building of the endometrial lining because estrogen is involved in proliferating and building the endometrial lining. So certainly there can be an effect that way. Now, I love that. Well, and like I could riff on this like all day, right? But I'll also share post-ovulatory. So if you've already ovulated, stress can also affect your cycle in a number of different ways. So, you know, I would say also one of the most common signs, like think of stress, not how you define it, but how your body experiences it. So an example of stress could be like you just took up like a new exercise routine and all of a sudden you're exercising like five times Mm -hmm. a week for three hours a day. You might not think that's stress. You might identify like exercise as a stress reliever for me, but your body could actually be interpreting that as stressful. And so post-ovulatory, you might end up with a shorter luteal phase. So in a normal cycle, it takes about 12 to 14 days between ovulation and your period. And you might notice that if something really stressful happens, that kind of like all your aid comes sooner because in order to maintain the normal luteal phase, you need sufficient progesterone to maintain the uterine lining. And if you stress yourself out, we make cortisol from progesterone. So if there's a very literal correlation between stressing yourself out post-ovulatory with spotting and a shorter luteal phase and all of those kinds of issues. I loved it. That might have been my favorite part of you giving us the exacts on like how it will lengthen or shorten your cycle based on when the stress occurs. Now you said there is a couple lines in the book that I think, I mean, the book is fantastic, right? But I love I thought this was like, yes, thank you for saying this. This was called Ask Yourself Some Big Questions. You can eat that because I see this. We see this a lot. And I love that you just called it out very clearly here. You can eat the healthiest diet and take all the right supplements. But if you work 80-hour weeks in a high-stress environment, there's a limit to the improvements you'll see on your charts until you acknowledge the elephant in the room. Yep. (laughs) So there's just things that sometimes don't work. And sometimes I just say to people that I know and love, I'm like, yeah, your life doesn't compute. Like, there's not possible to accomplish. Like, sometimes we have to get real with, we have very unrealistic expectations about what we can always accomplish. So we have to just get real sometimes. I'm like, yeah, actually, this is just way too much stuff. Not really sure what the end is here, but this isn't going to work. Hating your job is stress, right? And what your body perceives as stress. Well, I think, well, for me, I mean, all of my work centers around the menstrual cycle. And it's very useful because I find that I don't have to say as much. And it's not about me and my opinions. I mean, I always have an opinion, but it's not about that. It's about what's happening with your cycle. So I think that there's also a tendency if you chart your cycles and you see something that looks weird or looks off. Of course, I have that new disease that no one has heard before that's really rare. Of course, that must be the answer. It can't be (laughs) that I work 80 hours a week, that I don't sleep, that I drink coffee for breakfast, and I work out seven times a day. It can't be that, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that for some women in some cases, there's never been a literal in-your-face kind of like reminder that you actually have to take care of yourself until you start charting. And there are times when you can see it. I've had, you know, a similar conversation with a number of clients where, you know, why am I seeing this thing on my chart? Like, why am I seeing these five days of spotting? You know, what's going on? I take all these supplements, I do all these things. But then when we get into it, it's like, well, you're not eating enough, or you're not this, or you're not that. And again, it's not about my opinions. But the great thing about the cycle is that if you identify, so to go back to that 
point I made earlier about giving you an example of how making positive changes can actually make a change in the cycle right away. So I've seen it over and over again. One of the trends that I'm seeing now, and I don't know why, but it's just a trend that I'm seeing more and more of is that, well, have you ever met a woman that's like free all the time and like isn't busy? So like every woman I know, every woman I work with has a really busy life and it's full, it's rich. She's got family responsibilities. She's got employment responsibilities. She might have a business. So she's doing all of these things. We also want to feel good about ourselves. We want to look good. So there's certainly a trend for women, you know, we're healthy, we're eating good, we're reducing meat consumption, we're exercising more because we need to be healthy and we need to exercise. So I see this trend. And one of the things too is, so this is stereotypical and very gendered, but stereotypically speaking, men want to bulk up when they go to the gym. So Mm. obviously not every single man is the same. I'm just going to make a gendered stereotype statement, (laughs) like prefacing it because we live in an interesting world. Men typically want to bulk up. And so when they work out, they're taking protein, they're eating more meals, right? Because they're trying to gain muscle. Women, when we work out, that's not what we're trying to do. So often we start working out and then we eat the same as we did before. Mm. Except that now I'm working out two hours a day but I'm literally eating the same. And then when I start spotting before my period, I'm like, why? I must have this disease that is so rare. No, no, you don't. We need to actually look at these things. So that's something I've seen. And so I've seen it you know, over and over again where the premenstrual spotting, the kind of low progesterone, like that big buzzword, right? Everyone's talking about low progesterone and as if it's a mystery and like we have no idea what to do about it. So legitimately... You know, the best things you can do if you have issues with low progesterone are sleep in the dark for a minimum of seven hours a night. Stop having coffee for breakfast because coffee is an appetite suppressant. I'm not anti-coffee, but I'm calling you out. Coffee suppresses your appetite. And if you drink it first thing in the morning, you don't eat breakfast. I know you. I see you. I'm looking at you right now. And and also if you're working out, like good on you. But are you also having an equivalent of an additional meal every day? Does every single meal that you eat contain sufficient protein, fat, and carbohydrates? I will die on this hill. Eat, ladies, and your cycles will thank you. And eat like protein, please, please eat sufficient protein. (laughs) Well, I'm also applauding and thanking you in the background. I did this recent kind of adrenal class and the last week was talking about just like the hormonal dance and what's going on. And one of the feedback forms I got, this lady was kind of complaining. She's like, well, I wish you would have just given me a list of things I could do to increase progesterone. I was like, oh my gosh, I literally tried to address this in the class that you can't, like if this was possible, you could just Google that list. I'm at the point now where I feel like 60 to 80% of your progesterone problems are that you don't eat enough protein. Thank you. I mean, the world still is the way it is. And the food guide here in Canada still tells us to eat 12 to 15 servings of grains a day. Well, Mm -hmm. if you want to have a healthy cycle and you try to fit in those 12 to 15 servings of grains every day, and again, I'm not against grains, where does the protein come in? Mm -hmm. So you mean it's getting edged out? We're not getting the nutrients from the protein? Yeah. Like there's only so much you can eat. Mm -hmm. So if you think about like a bag, if you fill the bag with rice, where is the protein? And there just seems to be this tendency, you know, I ate a lot when I met my husband. He still to this day talks about how like we met at this conference at lunchtime. I like, and I wasn't doing anything weird. It's just, I just like took a plate and I filled it with food and I like ate. And he was like, what? And then I was like, oh, I'm still hungry. And I went for seconds. And he still to this day talks about that. So there's, Rude. 
but like not in a bad way, but he was right. like, wow, she actually eats. Oh, and or so, I love her. Yes. It was like that. Good. <laughs> but my kind of man, two things. One, it's hard for me to understand because I see a lot of my clients under eat. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard for me to understand, first of all, how are you not hungry? Like if I ate what you ate today, I would be on the floor. Like I need to eat more food. So there's part of me that doesn't understand why so many women either ignore their hunger cues or like, I just don't know. Or it could be that they're filling up with the carbohydrates. So they feel full, but they're not actually getting enough. So they're eating a lot of snacks throughout the day, but it's not substantial. Like there's Mm -hmm. that. Oh, I absolutely know. Yeah. But then there's also kind of like that. I don't know, just that kind of want to be thin. We're purposely trying not to eat as much or something. Well, and I will often see, especially this postpartum survival period or like not having planning a lunch. Like some people are like, can you give me the answer to this? And it's like, oh, I know when I do this, like you're just not eating. And then you're like eating a bag of chips and cheese or like a whole container of guacamole for lunch. And then you wonder why you like don't feel good or you're starving at four o'clock. I mean, it's very easy to see like when, if you write it down, I'm like, oh, and it's mostly easy for me to see because I've been you right? It's not like, it's mostly because I just didn't have a good plan, but you're taking it another step, which thank you, is that you might acknowledge that you're not getting enough to eat. I think we're like, I think we're pretty preoccupied with our size and that our body might change and all the things around it, but. And we're just busy because that to your point, that's true. Mm -hmm. Like, so I've had two babies. They're now not babies, five and eight. And I really credit the thing with me was that, so when I was breastfeeding now, like I mentioned already, I eat a lot. I don't even mean that I eat a lot. I'm just saying like I eat a healthy meal. I'm not saying I eat like more than I should. I eat actually the correct amount for my body size, just to be clear. You know what I'm saying? So when I was breastfeeding, I remember feeling this hang of hunger that took over. So even more than usual, I was like, oh, yo, I need to eat. And I credit really a lot of that to my husband. So I was fortunate he made me like food and a lot like especially postpartum, it was a lot of stews. And like, I just wanted like meat and stew and like soup and I don't know. But the point though, is that you need plans and strategies. And so the worst thing to do is to give a busy woman more to do. I agree. I agree. <laughs> you got to think this through. So right. it doesn't mean you have to make yourself like a an imperial breakfast or whatever, but you're going to have to think about this. And if you like, I have a shake here right now. I often grab shakes, especially if I have a mm-hmm. busy day, but the shake isn't bananas and milk. The shake is protein, mm-hmm. right? Like I usually put in like a collagen type protein powder so that I'm getting some animal protein. That's my preference. And then I'm also kind of doing dual duty because like I do, I have a treadmill under my desk, like I walk and work a lot. And so it's replenishing my collagen stores and all that kind of stuff, right? So I like to kind of do double duty. But the point is that in the shake, I'm getting protein and fat and I'm getting mm-hmm. low glycemic carbs. And it's just like a reminder. And then, you know, what are the breakfast options? Can you do eggs? You know, boiling eggs, even boiling them the night before, if you're a really busy person, can be a way for you to get an extra protein. What else can you do? Can you do leftovers from dinner? Can you buy bone broth and like have it in your house and like add it to the leftovers and have a cup of soup in the morning? Like what can we do to make life easier for you, but to also make you get sufficient protein? Life changes for so many women when you eat sufficient protein in the morning at breakfast time. Like it's revolutionary. Mm-hmm. and the cycle can change like that. So like, I feel like I'm still trying to make that point of the example. But yes, I've seen women go from bleeding three to seven days before their periods to not bleeding in one cycle by eating enough food. 
Thank you. Man, thank you for reiterating. I mean, like I'm with you, but I just really appreciate when someone else says it as well. Like that's all I just needed you to say that. So if you were there for the adrenal reset, you know what I'm talking about? If you weren't, that's okay too, but it's good for everyone. Lisa, we could talk about this stuff forever. Where can people find you online? Well, thank you. And this has been super fun. So what we're talking about here today, I mean, it's a lot of it's in the book. So the fifth vital sign book.com. If you liked what we talked about, you can get the first chapter for free over there. I have a podcast, the Fertility Friday podcast. And so just type in Fertility Friday in your favorite podcast player. And there's like over 350 episodes. So there's a lot of material to go through. And I'm usually on Instagram at Fertility Friday talking about some interesting fertility awareness, birth control related things over there. I look forward to our next chat. Thank you so much for coming on today. When trying to conceive and grow a small human or nourish yourself through some of the tough stuff our bodies have to deal with day to day, a high quality prenatal is your first insurance policy. Unlike the majority of prenatal supplements, full well prenatal exceeds current safety standards by independent testing for heavy metals, allergens, and other contaminants on every single batch produced, which is absolutely the exception in the supplement industry. Longtime private practice functional medicine dietitian and mother Fullwell prenatal creator Ayla Barmer has a deep knowledge on the needs and challenges of women before, during, and after pregnancy. You can feel confident in the year she spent curating the best forms of nutrients for Fullwell in dosages that actually align with research in a gentle, easy-to-use formula that doesn't upset your stomach. Check out the new website at fullwellfertility.com and use the code less stress to get a discount on your order. Sharing and reviewing this podcast is the best way to help us succeed with our mission to help integrate the best of East and West and empower you to raise the bar on your health story. Just go to reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. That's reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. And you'll be taken directly to a page where you can insert your review and hit post.